Welcome, everyone, to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am your co-host, Mark Bickney, and with me, as always, is my always virtue-minded Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Doing good, Mark. I just want to warn everyone that I actually slept for once, so be aware and be ready, because we're, we're, we're doing this. People could barely handle 80% Walker. Now they're going to get 100% Walker. It's 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 gonna it's gonna happen, Mark. This is a board gaming podcast about board games and and games we played this week and and news and why it doesn't matter. And then the game that we're going to feature this week is Imperium: The Contention. Great card game. Can't wait to talk about it, Mark. What did you play this week? I got to try Ankh, Gods of Egypt. Finally, the gods of the Nile decided to bestow their permissive, loving gazes onto Canada, and so we've started getting our copies. I have played Ankh twice now, and that is not for want of trying to play more, because long story short, cutting to the end, I am super enthusiastic about Ankh, Gods of Egypt. The last time I was this pro in Eric Lang design was definitely Blood Rage, and it's probably, I think, his best work other than Blood Rage. It is quite deterministic in the way that it works. It's almost zero luck. The only aspect of some people argue that simultaneous action selection is luck. We can shelve those discussions for later. And as a result, it feels almost like an abstract in terms of managing and massaging the tempo of actions. Well, if I do action B and then D, that sets someone up to possibly do the C and then D and then trigger an event, or possibly something else that will be harmful to my interests, therefore I should really choose another action, or, or, or... Just the action selection alone, I really quite enjoy. Long story short, there's four available actions. You can do two actions in a turn if your second action is lower on the action selection board, but... At the end of each track, before the track resets to do a certain action, is an event. And these events can be extremely consequential. And knowing who gets to trigger them and at what times is more or less the key driver of the game. In some ways, more so than the actual actions that people select. And so you're frequently in this tension between the actions you want to perform and massaging the tempo of when the events are going to occur and who gets to control them. And layer on top of this is all the standard stuff that you would expect from an Eric Lang strange multiplayer conflict game. Asymmetric powers, the purchase of new asymmetric powers, simultaneous action selection combat. But I really feel this has been a mechanism that has been kicking around in a lot of different versions in a lot of different ways. From Game of Thrones to even Blood Rage to Dungeon Twister. But I, I've never liked simultaneous action selection combat nearly so much as I do in Ankh, Gods of Egypt. Because what it is, is building in some of the core functions of the game into the actual combat cards. So th this, these conflict events don't end up just being combat. They end up being the entire area control, point scoring, monument controlling element in a microcosm. How do you build more monuments? Well... That's determined by combat. How do you score extra points through doing the so-called Loki strategy of desiring to lose? Well, that's built into the combat deck. It's beautiful. I could keep talking about it for a very, very long time, and I suspect in the future I will. But, Walker, what do you think of Ankh, Gods of Egypt? Oh, it's, you echoed everything that I said last week and more. I didn't think the camels were a huge deal last week, but, man, in our game, it's just such a great mechanism. It's this event that comes up that lets you divide the map even further and make totally different strategic choices and changes the game up and it's just another layer of things that you have to think of that are about to happen 
like who's going to trigger the the battle when they when they you know make that new territory how are they going to change the order in which the battles take place because the battles take place in a certain order and when you make a new territory you can switch these numbers around slightly which totally you know manipulates things around i just can't wait to play more tons of different scenarios to try out agreed the subtle implications of small decisions sometimes they're not immediate at the beginning of the game but you make these lovely revelations over the course of even just a single session, like the order in which conflicts happen. Because you might have a unit that resurrects itself, you might have a question of a unit moving to a different area to participate in another conflict, or you might just have the, the, the mere fact that you're not going to have enough power to do the thing you want to do in an earlier conflict, but you will in a later conflict. And it reminds me a little bit, of Butterfly Flapping Its Wings and Massive Consequences Elements of Rising Sun. But where I find Rising Sun frustrating was that very frequently it made me feel like, well, unless I do A and B before C, C's going to be useless. And I didn't get my ducks in a row, and so it all kind of lands with a massive thud, and I don't have enough money or troops to get anything done. And I thought that a little frustrating and a little limiting. Ankh, on the other hand, doesn't, as Walker might say, handcuff you in quite the same way in my experience. It's merely a question of getting the most out of your actions, of being able to execute these things, rather than being a prerequisite for getting anywhere at all. And so it absolutely rewards forward planning, but gives you an array of possibilities, an array of options, rather than dictating that you need to get things done in a particular order. And again, that was my key criticism of Rising Sun. But Ankh, I really think, is Eric Lang at his best, and the production of Kuhlman or Not, normally we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about Kuhlman or Not productions because they're all more or less the same. I think this is they've really upped their game in terms of the quality of sculpts and in terms of the quality of execution of the miniatures. It's a lovely addition, whether you've got the Kickstarter version or not. Not a huge deal. The exclusives, honestly, I think are less important in this game than I think in, in, in past games. Having extra gods is nice, but that's going to be available retail. Honestly, I think Ankh is a real solid winner. Can't wait to play more. Very intriguing design and very, very interesting to ponder its implications. Yeah, the choice they made with the gods, right? They made them these huge figures and think they're going to be this, you know, overwhelming presence, but they're just the same as a troop. They have one power. And of course, they have special abilities, but just the fact that they don't die. So like, there's this anchor for your army. So you know you're always going to have presence somewhere. So you know you're never going to be, you know, out of a t particular area and know how you're going to come back in. Just a great touch to a great game. Yes. The consequence of losing your troops can be exceptionally consequential, both in terms of board presence and in terms of scoring possibility. So having that extra little anchor, as you put it, is really an excellent way to solidify things, as well as just giving you an excuse to have a lovely little cosmetic touch. Who doesn't want a giant crocodile man running around the Nile? And that is Ankh by Eric Lang. Mark, all of my games are sort of grouped into two, and this was completely not by design and only realized when I started writing everything down. All right. My first two games are Furnace by Ivan Lashin from Smartphone Inc. People know that game. I have yet to play it, but I've heard good buzz about it. And Furnace was put out by Hobby World. And it's going to be compared to Century Spice and mm. or Splendor and or any other cube pusher. Yes. But what I feel Furnace does that's better than all of these games is that it, it gives you what all of those games try to give you but in 
the proper amount of time. It's four turns. It's got this very interesting sort of bidding on the cards me- mechanism as opposed to like just letting them cycle through and putting more gems out to get more gems in from cards. Everyone has four tokens numbered one through four. And the tokens are also sized, you know, this one is small and the four is large and you're putting them out on this, on these eight cards in a four player game. Very simple rules. You can't have two of your tokens on the same card and there can't be two of the same number on the same card. So it's very interesting bidding mechanism. And even if you don't win the card, everyone that didn't win gets to get a compensation reward that's printed on the top of the card, which just means more resources or, or you get to run a, a little minor engine while you're divvying out the cards. And then everyone just runs their engine. Almost everything's simultaneous. There's hardly any downtime. Runs super quick. Only three resources to worry about. I'll play Furnace anytime. Very interesting game. I get to play Furnace as well. And like you, I was originally leery. Well, I was originally leery because like you, I made the obvious connection between Furnace and Century Spice Road. It is very much a cube pusher. Get two of this kind of cube to convert to this one other kind of cube and turn that into points. Normally, I am dubious of such games. I don't find them terribly engaging. For one thing, we've been doing it for well over 20 years. And outside of Citadel Confluence, which sadly I don't get to play anymore, it is not really something that I enjoy doing. And I, I expect something to zhuzh it up. Furnace is, is an almost comically typical Euro setup. First we do the auctions, and then we do the actions. And the actions don't involve any player interaction, but the auctions do. I think what you're doing actually, though, is underselling the genius of the auction element, because it's a four-round game, as you say, and most of these converters that you acquire, say you need to turn stone into iron or something. Typically, you might get a card that can convert stone into iron maybe twice. If you acquire that card in round one or two, well, you're good to go. That's going to be a solid source of iron throughout much of the game. But if you acquire that card in round three or four, eh, a little less useful. On the other hand, when you quote-unquote lose a bid, say I put my three bid on where someone else has put a four bid, that means I get to do whatever's printed on the top of the card three times. Near the end of the game, some of the most substantial elements of your engine could come from your, again, in theory, lost bids. So you can deliberately underbid, but knowing that you're going to get an awesome side benefit from being able to run this engine. And I found myself in a couple of junctures in Furnace relying crucially on my lost bids to run the core elements of my engine. So you have this transient engine element of conversion, and again, it depends on timing, what you need to plug up the shortfalls of your normal quote-unquote static engine. Marvelous, marvelous game. I, I was quite engaged by Furnace. It's not revolutionary. We've, I think we've emphasized some of the clever bits. And again, as I say, the structure is something that we've seen many, many times before. But it does so in a very efficient package and in a very novel way in terms of dealing with lost bids. I think that if you're going to play a quick engine builder, then Furnace is probably the one to beat, certainly amongst the releases of the past couple of years. I was very pleased by Furnace. Yeah, it, it runs into some of the problems that I have in games... Uh, you know, where it's very much heads down and everyone runs their engine at the same time. And yes. we were announcing our scores at the end of every round, right? So, you know, people say, oh, I got 56 this round, right? So you have no idea what they're doing, but the game is so short, it really doesn't bother me as much as the other games I've talked about in the past. It's true. And that is Furnace by Ivan Lashin by, and published by Hobby World. I get to play Core Worlds Galactic Orders. As you know, Core Worlds is one of our favorite pure deck builders, and Galactic Orders is the first expansion, and that's my preferred way to play Core Worlds. It adds that extra little bit of flexibility because, again, 
Core Worlds is very much a game about meeting thresholds. You need to conquer this world, so for that you need 5 military strength and 10 fleet strength. Well, if you can only get to, say, 4 strength in the relevant capacity, normally in the base game you just can't do it at all. Or if you're an energy short, or an action short, or a card short. Well, the great thing about Galactic Orders is it gives you a little bit of extra flexibility. Not painlessly, of course, because typically speaking, every time you use a token... For the added benefit, number one, you had to work to get it. But number two, it's probably going to end up costing you a point one way or the other. But it is often worth it in order to get over that hump. And that's one of the reasons why I think the Galactic Orders is a very needed element to Core Worlds. I happily played Core Worlds and enjoyed it thoroughly before being exposed to the first expansion. But now having tried it with Galactic Orders, I don't think that I'd ever feel comfortable going back. It's very long for pure deck builder, and that's one of the reasons why we we always recommend it primarily for two or three players, and three players might sometimes even be pushing it, perhaps for experts, but that's only if you're really asking for trouble. In that sense, it's very similar to the recent Imperium by Nigel Buckland and David Zertze, and I think during my review of Imperium, I actually made that connection. Had a great time with Core Worlds. One of the things that I'd forgotten about it, though, is just how interesting a lot of the units appear to be. I'm not going to claim that every card is a story unto itself, but when compared to a lot of other deck builders that are particularly uninspired in terms of the graphical flourishes or the thematic elements that seek to explain what the card is doing. You know, your Thunderstones, your Dominions, even sometimes maybe something like Shards of Infinity. Here's a strange transmental badass. They give you combat and mastery. Why not? Sure. I do actually appreciate the interesting ships and the different infantry elements that you might get in the game of Core Worlds, and as well the entirely superfluous, but nonetheless appealing to me, mythological naming for all the worlds. For example, there was a world I conquered called Guinevere that would that was easier to conquer by virtue of my influence in the Order of Knighthood. So little things like that, which are just nice little elements of icing on top of a very, very solid game. Thoroughly enjoyed going back to Core Worlds. Very much recommended if you're at all interested in deck builders like this. Core Worlds Galactic Orders. This is by Andrew Parks and put up by Stronghold Games in 2012. Yes, hard to believe they were actually publishing games way back then. My next two games that are comparable are Korra, Rise of an Empire. This is designed by Headquarters Simulation Game Club and put out by Yellow. And Trackistry by Jamie Stegmeyer, put out by Stonemeyer Games. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it so much. Okay, so... These are so many tracks in these games. So in Korra, it's a brand new game from Yellow. It's one of their like expert series games. And what you're doing this, you're you're going you're rolling dice. This is if, if anyone watched the, the Twitch stream and wept along with me, this is maybe we found one of the small problems with this game is that you you get two actions at the start and you're rolling your dice and you're matching up these dice with your actions and if you're trying to do a more powerful action then you have to supplement it with citizens if you didn't roll high enough and my dice rolling was so horrendous that i feel as though it pushed me you know out of the running and it 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 didn't take away much from the game like i was trying to explain to the people at the at the table it was just more of i i didn't like it because i couldn't keep up with the other players i was still enjoying playing the game it was just the fact that I, i could tell almost immediately that i was falling you know, way back from being even competitive in the least. I don't mean to interrupt your train of thought, Walker, and I, I want to hear the rest of what you have to say about Korra, but I've been reading about this online. What did the dice add to the game? That's a good question. <laughs> I think it just 
yeah, could you just pick? But then you could just pick the same ones. It, it just it pushes you in certain directions, right? It just okay. leads you from stopping. Maybe you don't want to do. They want to make some of the actions a little harder to do, maybe, and not just cycle through them every turn. Because some of them, you know, are a, a little more powerful. Okay. So they wanted to make it harder for you to do them, maybe. And the other the other part of the game that's random as well is this political deck that you're going to be drawing from. And, and these abilities that you get are quite powerful. And you might get exactly the cards you're looking for, or you might not get any of the cards you're looking for. So there is a lot of randomness in this game, and there are a lot of tracks. But I still, for the two times I played it this week, had really enjoyed playing it. There's, you know, you're trying to keep your currency up so you're getting a good income every turn and you are you're need a military to get these tokens because at the end of the game, it's wreaths times wreaths. So number of these wreath tokens that you acquire and how much you go up this glory track. So that's the big scoring thing. It's very, has a, a, a few things that are very similar to Orleans, you know, with this multiplier at the end and something at the beginning that I can't remember. But there's a few elements that you'll feel, though, that were pulled almost right from Orleans. And Tapestry, I went back to it because it's up on Board Game Arena now. So I played a, a few games of that this week as well. Why do you hurt yourself, Walker? I don't know, Mark. I just, I, I wanted to give it another chance. You know, it's like, okay, well, maybe, maybe now, maybe now I'll, I'll <laughs> feel as though it's not just pushing up these tracks and, and it was just tedium <laughs> it really was but it, it is comparable because it is tracks you're going up these different tracks they give you benefits and there's it's also supplemented with a card system because you're playing a uh you're getting these uh inventions that you're upgrading and you're also playing these every time you have to reset because you've run out of resources you're you know going to the next age so you're like looking through those cards so they're very they are very comparable but i will play Korra rise of empire over tapestry anytime because it moves along at, at, at a very quick pace because they say you know the lowest the first player is the person who rolled the lowest on their dice but the only time that even comes into play is when you're resolving one action and that's if if two different people chose that action, other times everyone's doing everything simultaneously. It moves along at a great clip and uh, is a great production, right? Yellow is known for their, uh, you know, more of a gateway type game or maybe a younger audience game, like sort of like a, a King of Tokyo type game. But just this just means they know how to write a rule book. They know how mm. to put symbology on the boards and make everything flow nicely and they just did a great job with this game oh before i forget i don't want to forget this was a review copy given to us by yellow anyway love cora rise of an empire i just have a, a minor digression i find it interesting that in so many euro games the economy is somewhat deterministic but whenever politics is represented it's often just a random deck of cards it's as though well look anything involving money or the economy we understand why it happens exactly the way it happens, and everything's going to be nice and predictable. Politics, on the other hand, who knows? Things fall from the sky, which I think represents an interesting bias on a view of the world. They, they, well, they read a book, Mark, and it said there was politics back then, so we got to put politics in the game. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna make it we're gonna make it politics. Sure, politics. On the topic of politics, I got to play the Resistance Avalon. Now, this I ended up playing Avalon because that's the version that's in my Quest big box. I've talked about Quest a couple times in the past few weeks. That's Don Eskridge's tweak on the Resistance formula. 
I was in a position where they we were either going to play Quest of the Resistance. I was able to say, do you feel like something that's more rule-heavy or uh, something that's more intense? Because it occurred to me that there's an inverse correlation between the two when comparing the Resistance to Quest. Quest has a lot more rules with respect to A, overturning B's win unless C intervenes and things like that. Whereas the Resistance Avalon, it's more about having lots of information into the system and everyone being accountable for every one of their votes, every one of their assignments, and every one of their card plays. And it was great. There were accusations and lots of yelling and people's feelings were hurt. You know, a classic game of the Resistance. I really, I'm starting to strongly dislike more and more the theming of the Resistance Avalon. I mean, it, this, this whole take on the Arthurian legends where Mordred is represented by spies and nobody knows who Merlin is and all this stuff. Is, ugh, I, 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 I could take your leave. And that's one of the reasons why I prefer when playing the Resistance, even with the quote-unquote Avalon module with Merlin and the Assassin, to do it in the original version in the dystopian universe. But that was not available because, as I say, I had the, the, the quest big box with Resistance Avalon inside. And so it was lovely to return back to it. It got very intense very quickly, even amongst new players. People caught on immediately. Why did you vote that way? What implication are you drawing from the fact that A vouched for B but didn't vouch for C? Things like that. Marvelous evolving logic puzzle. I hadn't played the Resistance in a very long time for perhaps obvious reasons. And now getting back to big groups, I didn't have access to a group that was inclined towards an intense social deduction experience. And so I was very, very pleased to return back to it. And that was The Resistance Avalon by Don Eskridge. All right. So my next two games, the first one is Sim- Simplicity by David Brain and put out by Fractal Jewess and Cloud City, which sort of, you know, blew my joke, Mark. My joke was going to be, Mark, do you remember in uh, Baron Park, they have the new tram system? I do, Walker. I do remember this thing. We thought the tram system was fantastic. So the joke was going to be, Mark, do you want to just play the tram system out of out of Baron Park? Well, we could do that now. But it is Cloud City is also a design by Phil Walker Harding <laughs> and put out by Blue Orange. And I read the rule book because it's on Board Game Arena now. Right now, it just came out and it had this very interesting, like 3D sort of view where you're going to build a city, has all this plastic and these walkways and, and you're putting down these tiles. I said, Oh man, this is going to be intense. I better read the rules before I start. And then when I was finished the paragraph, I was like, (laughs) Are you kidding me? Like, maybe it's just me. I don't, you, you put down these tiles and you put these buildings down and then you add walkways. That's the game. I, I guess people can say, well, you can figure out because the different heights and get more walkways in and, and maybe it's just not a game for me, Mark. Simplicity, on the other hand, there's this rotating choice of tiles and depending on which one you take, it's sort of like King Domino gauging so the you know the worse one you take the the higher you'll be for next turn so you'll get your choice so you're they match up tiles with symbols so when you take this building it can only go a certain part of the map and you're trying to get these clumps and lines of different colored buildings and i'm not saying it's a great game but it's a, a lot more me it has a lot more to it than <laughs> cloud city did that's for sure but enjoyed them both cloud city Getting these, you know, long pathways, it's one of those things like, oh, look what I did. I created this, you know, it's very visually pleasing, but there's like so much stuff there for so little game. I just, I couldn't see how they justified it. That's all. Mm. 
Well, that's a natural segue, actually, because I played Niagara. Niagara was published 15 years ago and won the SDJ, which is interesting. You can actually track the progress of SG. I think these are excellent bookends. 1995, El Grande wins the SDJ. 2004, Niagara wins the SDJ. And there you go, nine short years. <laughs> excellent decline. Anyway, Niagara... Look, Niagara is a f- a fine as a game. Designed by Thomas Leishing and put up by Zach Verlag. I own Niagara, like, years ago. Yeah, it, look, it's designed around a physical gimmick, and the physical gimmick doesn't work. I've played Niagara on several different copies, and it's never worked properly. There's this notion of this river that's flowing along, and based on the movement tokens that everyone plays, you add a certain number of discs to the river, and the the board is layered, and so you take these large plastic discs and try to slide down the rest of the discs of the river. There are two problems. Number one, the discs don't lie flat enough in my experience, and so they always end up bunching up or sliding over each other. And number two, in every session of Niagara I've played, which admittedly is only about three or four times, the the river gets jammed, and then you have to dislodge the disc that's stuck at the end of the river. And in so doing, you actually can prejudice the results of the game. Anyway... If you're going to design a game around a physical gimmick, make sure the physical gimmick worked. Never had that problem. Oh, well, maybe you have the one functional copy and I need to go play yours. <laughs> Actually, I'd rather I suppose. not. Don't make me play yours. Yeah, this, no, yeah, yeah. This is not a binding problem. It's definitely dated. It's just, it's not even that it's dated. I just find it kind of pointless. You're playing movement tiles and you're going and you're grabbing jewels. In certain very narrow circumstances, largely largely by accident, you can steal other people's jewels. And you're just moving canoes right around and sometimes you get stuck because the river is flowing downstream at a rate of three, but all your high movement tokens have already been played. And so you're just tediously going back up the river. The reason why I played Niagara, and this is actually an issue that has shown up before, I was happy to do it, though. I was happy to play Niagara, even though I wasn't looking forward to it, because there's a gentleman with developmental disabilities that has started coming around to the open game nights at the game store where I play. And it is very important to create as open and as welcoming an environment as possible. He has a couple of games that he likes to play, and those are the games that he wants to play, and that's about it. And that's fine. That's okay. He knows the games he knows, and that's all right. One of them is Castles of Burgundy. He's very disappointed that nobody wants to play Castles of Burgundy with him, uh, largely because I don't want to play Castles of Burgundy. And between playing Niagara, which is at least, you know, 45 minutes of kind of pointlessness, and around two and a half hours of Feldian overwroughtness, I definitely have a preference for the former rather than the latter. So I was okay with with doing so under the aegis of welcoming people and trying to be as inclusive as possible. That having been said, I don't recommend Niagara as a design. And so that was my experience with Niagara. Lastly for me, Mark, I got Kabuto Sumo back to the table. And thankfully it played out exactly like I wanted to. We played three very quick games. Sean, just like I wanted to. knocking Knocking other Beatles out. Special abilities. Doing funky, crazy things. Kabuto Sumo. If you're looking for like sort of a pusher, not so much dexterity game, then Kabuto Sumo will be for you. This is designed by Tony Miller and published by Board Game Tables. And what it is, it's just like, you know, when you're at a fair and you're dropping quarters down and it's pushing more quarters to the front in this like weird, bizarre stepping motion. That's what you're doing. You're sliding these discs onto this arena, trying to push each other's beetle off the edge of the off the edge of the board and you have all these oddly shaped pieces as your signature move and any pieces that fall off the board while you're pushing you're going to use those for your next turn and if you ever can't if you run out of pieces then you're out or if you get your beetle knocked off then you're out it's a great little game tell me of the beetle you played walker 
I played the nature. I played the nature uh, bug, of course. Woo! The nature bug, the one where you stack all the discs on top of your own beetle and then get to use them all in one turn. Yes. Not sure what that one is. I never. I had this great stack, but I thought, you know, why, why take it? Because he so he was so heavy. Whenever he tried to push him off, all the discs <laughs> would like would like get pushed to the side. He end up pushing his own beetle off in that game. It was fantastic. And then I played Cactus Jack. They have great beetle names, great puns. It's just a very, very cute little game. That's for sure. On the topic of cute little games, I played Camel Up Second Edition. I will note that the box for the second edition of Camel Up definitively establishes whether it wants to be called Camel Up or Camel Cup. I know that in the first edition there's some controversy by virtue of the placement of the C. I find it interesting. But in the second edition, it's very clear. The C is not next to the U. It is Camel Up as far as the second edition is concerned. This is my first time playing, actually. I know that Camel Up has been around for a while. And Camel Up is a very simple racing slash betting game where camels are running around a track and you're betting on who is going to finish first, either for the leg or for the given race. This is a well-worn theme that's been done a number of times. The novel element in Camel Up is that, as the name might imply, the camels can stack on top of each other. And if a camel moves, it moves all the camels on its back as well. This is a sort of visual gag based on the components. But I don't look, I'm not an expert on these animals, but I, I don't think the camels actually move that way. Do, do, do camels move in great honking stacks, I saw, Walker? I saw a video. That's how, it's, that's how it works. Oh, is that how it works? This is common in camel it movement? Is. Okay. It's, a, it's about several camels, you know, piggyback each other around. It's a whole thing. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Know, you got to know how to, you got to know how to search for it. That's all. Sure, you got to know the science, and this is why I'm glad that I'm able to ask Walker, because he can clarify things about the natural world to me. I'll say that as an experience, it was very, very quick, very easy to understand, and had a marvelous, marvelous physical gimmick. There's this plastic pyramid where you push a button and it will eject a die. There is superfluous and utterly unused pop-up book elements on the board itself, these palm trees and some oasis features that just show up on the board. No gameplay function whatsoever, just purely cosmetic bling. So obviously, if you're going to go for one of the two editions of Camel Up, I think the second edition is a marvelous step forward in that sense, because the first edition had a cardboard pyramid with rubber bands instead of an actual plastic button. Come on. Come on. Why bother? But in terms of playing the game, both I and another person at the table said this is vaguely similar to and yet less satisfying than Winner's Circle. Winner's Circle being the Reiner Knizia similar theory game where no one's really controlling an individual horse, but you're betting on various horses and anyone can move them. Uh, just more engaging, more satisfying in terms of decision making. The graphical flourishes were nice, and again, the short playing time has a lot to recommend it, but I didn't really feel there was a whole lot there. So as a filler for waiting for people to show up, Camel Up seems fine. Any more than that, I don't know that it would be able to pull its own weight, no pun intended. And that was Camel Up Second Edition by Stefan Bogan, published by Eggertspiel. Finally from me, I got to play a game that's been uh, deep in my guilty secret heart, something I've been wanting to try for some time ever since it's been released a couple of years ago, and that was Robotech Brace for Impact. Now, of course, in my mind, it is not Robotech Brace for Impact. It is Macross Brace for Impact. And in my head, as people were referring to these made-up names like Rick Hunter and Max Sterling, I was instead, of course, only hearing Ichijo Hikaru and Max Genius. Of course, naturally, as any decent person would. 
But Robotech Brace for Impact is a large player count, wants to start around five, real-time, simultaneous, one-v-all game where one player is playing as the aliens, and everyone else is screaming at each other to repair the armor. Why isn't anyone repairing the armor? Please, we'll help someone repair the armor. Walker, have you ever played the mobile game Space Team? No, I have not. So Space Team is a mobile game where, basically, in order to get an action done, one player issues a call-out, and then another player issues the response. So I know that something has to be done, but I'm not able to do it myself. Now, the, the key behind Space Team as a mobile game was that the names were stupid. You don't pull lever E, for example. You instead flangle the watery engine, and then someone else needs to go flangle the thing, whatever, th- whatever that happens to mean. It's usually a button somewhere. But Same kind of idea for Robotech Brace for Impact, but instead of silly made-up things, you have, you know, actual systems of the SDF-1. You know, real life. And so someone might say, we need to send repair teams to fix the armor. And then someone else has a card that at the bottom this, uh, that says, we'll dispatch them right away to the armor system. Something for something like that. And you actually have to say the things. I was worried that people were going to feel too adult to be willing to issue these actual callouts. But it's a real-time game. So actually uttering the things that are on the cards and the delay that, that involves and the possible lack of recognition that involves while everyone's shouting at each other, that's really part of the game. But nonetheless, people started getting into it because it's very intense and the time pressure is very real. They probably weren't appreciating the thematic elements, but they were willing, despite being grown adults, they were willing to actually say what was written on the cards. Conversely, what's strange, actually, the alien, while the humans are running around like chickens with their heads cut off, the alien just does things at a stately pace. They're under time pressure as well, but they're able to do an action every 30 seconds or so, and so they have the time to ponder what they're going to do with that action, and then the time elapses, they do the simple thing, and then they watch us struggle and squirm and sweat. It's an interesting asymmetry in that sense between the nature of the time pressure. I thought it was fine. It was an enjoyable enough activity. Solid game design it is not, and there are some production issues with respect to the spinner. My spinner didn't quite work. In a real-time game, if something's not going to work, that can create some problems as everyone's scrambling to fix the spinner. But I enjoyed the real-time nature of it. Some people really hate real-time games, as you and I both know. And a number of people of that persuasion found it incredibly stressful, especially in the context of a co-op game, because you feel like you're letting the team down. So not for everybody. It only lasts 10 minutes, though, which is definitely interesting. And once you get past the imperfect rulebook, it's a very, very simple experience and can accommodate large groups of people. So if you have a number of people that are into the Robotech theme, by which I mean the Macross theme, which is the true and just way to refer to the game, then you might be interested in giving it a shot. But don't expect a whole heck of a lot out of it. It definitely doesn't have the depth or the level of complexity or interest that, say, Space Cadet's Dice Duel does, which is another team-based, real-time game. Although the rules grit is substantial in that case. I mean, given the choice, I would much rather play Space Cadet's Dice Duel, but that, in turn, is a super, super niche product. Again, real-time, team-based game, so you have all that stress, plus a relatively significant rules load. Robotech Brace for Impact at least has the benefit of being simple. It it is awkward, though, Mark, when you get kicked off the team for being (laughs) poorly. I'm still part of the family, Dad. There's a story here that I don't think I'm recognizing, Walker. (laughs) (laughs) And those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, Mark, it's upon us. This Saturday coming up, we have our fundraiser for Food Banks Canada. We have our guests lined up. We have No Pun Included and Board Game Barrage. 
We're going to be playing The Crew, and we're going to be giving away copies of The Crew Mission Deep Sea. How excited are you? I'm extremely excited. We've already had a couple of very generous donations, one in the names of Badgers from Mars, and one in the name of Air Canada, in gratitude for all the excellent customer service complaints that we've sent to them over the years. So if you want to go check out the website for the fundraiser, the URL is going to be included in the episode notes. And we hope to see you on Twitch this Saturday, October 2nd, at 3 p.m. EST. Speaking of Twitch, Mark, we, this Saturday... If you were interested at all at the what we talked about so far, Cora uh, or The Furnace, we played both of those on Saturday. And I'm sure more than likely going to be streaming this Saturday morning coming up as well as in the afternoon. And I'm uh, not sure what we're playing on Saturday, but in the next couple of days, I also should have a unboxing coming up and uh, going to be showing off the new Concordia digital game for people who are interested in that. Up on Kickstarter right now is a game called Myth and Goal from Blacklist Games. It's designed by James Hewitt and Sophie Williams. As much as I appreciate puns, I'm more keen on the design pedigree. James Hewitt and Sophie Williams of Needy Cat Games are the people who did Hellboy the board game. And James Hewitt was also involved in designing Blitz Bowl, which comes with high praise and yet I have yet to try. Uh, my key misgivings about Myth and Goal is that it's kind of pricey. We're talking about a minimum pledge of 100 American bucks, and it's only a one- or two-player game, and I'm not sure I need another one of those in my collection, but I'm looking at it very keenly, and I m- might, and by might, I mean probably end up pledging because I have weak sales resistance when it comes to James Hewitt and Sophie Williams. That is Myth and Goal on Kickstarter now. So a long time ago, Mark, you and I played a game called Let's Make a Bus Route, where it was sort of you flipped up a card and everyone drew on the same map while you moved your bus around the town, picking up passengers and visiting museums and universities and such. And it's going to get a reprint. And it's going to be called Get On Board New York and London. So it will be more readily available. You won't have to import it. It was, a, it was a great little sort of draw and write, and uh, I can't wait to see the new art, to see if it sort of has that same, you know, unique feeling as the original game did. Also up on Kickstarter right now is Eastern Empires by 999 Games. Originally, this game was Mega Civilization, but two things have changed. And number one, they lost the rights to the term Civilization, and so it became Western Empires and Eastern Empires, the second change being that they split it up into two different games. So Western Empires was released through normal retail, and it's kind of sort of kicking around, but you can also get it through this Kickstarter for Eastern Empires. So you've heard us talk about Mega Civ a number of times. The It was indeed the last game we played before the pandemic hit, uh, at least the way before lockdown sank in in our little area of the world. Think of that what you will. Correlation, correlation does not equal causation, but there is an epidemic disaster that got played several times in that game, so who's to say? Anyway, Eastern Empires is going to complete the sort of Mega Empires experience. They have a number of modules that are new to the game, such as buildings, which I don't think add very much, and a three to four player scenario, which, I mean, quite frankly, play basic civ, you might as well. I will mention one more thing, though, about Eastern Empires. It's, it's, I still think that it's unacceptable that Triple Nine Games has just written out the design team of, of Advanced Civilization. 
both Eastern Empires and Western Empires and Megasiv are clearly iterations on advanced civilization, more so than basic civilization. While they give credit to Francis Tresham, the author of Civilization, as well they should, they make no mention of the people who are involved in doing advanced civilization, which, despite the fact that I don't really like advanced civilization, is weird and unacceptable. I, there might be... I, I Look, they've had intellectual property issues before and licensing issues before. I just think that it's unfortunate that we are literally seeing history being rewritten here and developers being written out of the history of a still very influential game. And I don't feel very hot about that. So that's my comment about Eastern Empire's representation of its own history. So there will not be an episode next week because here in Canada, we want to take our holiday Thanksgiving earlier than everyone else because it's a better Thanksgiving than other Thanksgivings and therefore should be done before other Thanksgivings. So we'll be taking next week off. So we'll see you in two weeks. Two weeks. Well, we're going to see everybody on Saturday, right, Walker? That's true. Another brief mention of something on Kickstarter, Skinny Minis. Skinny Minis is a campaign to give you miniatures primarily for role-playing games, but they could be used for lots of actual miniatures games that are the lovely full-color art printed two-dimensional tokens that you've seen in a number of games uh, recently on Kickstarter, among them Uprising and some other applications. And another salient benefit of this, in addition to being cheaper and allowing you full-color art without having to paint the miniatures, you can store them in a binder. And you can store an entire miniatures collection in a binder. They'll sell you the binder, they'll sell you the sheets. It's an impressive idea, and I'm impressed with the execution. Mostly, though, I'm impressed that they have a collection of heroes with disabilities and a collection of non-binary heroes. These are areas where tabletop role-playing is, I think, at least a few years ahead of hobby games in terms of representation. So I applaud them for that decision. I'm probably going to pledge for some just to round up my collection of quick and easy and durable miniatures that don't need to be painted. Yeah, I, d I did look at that project. It, I was very impressed. They have, like, the siege machines and the larger monsters. All of that stuff looks very cool. And at first I thought, oh, you know, two-dimensional, they'll look awful. But no, they look they look they were pretty impressive. They look pretty slick. I also like the terrain. Uh, but yes, the siege engines look cool, too. Next up, we have announced the winners for the International Gamers Awards. As you know, Walker and I are on the jury for some reason. The nominees were announced a few weeks ago, and the winners are as follows. In the multiplayer strategy category, it is Czech Games Edition's Lost Ruins of Arnok, which is absolutely 100% a game, and it was a game that was nominated. Two-player game, it's Cosmos's My City by Reiner Knizia, which... I think is absolutely a great win. Walker and I had a great time playing through our campaign exclusively two-player, so winning the two-player category seems pretty appropriate. And in the solo category, Czech Games Edition again with Under Falling Skies, which is a fabulous solo game, originally print and play, and CGE did a marvelous version of introducing a campaign element and beautiful components to an already solid design. So congratulations to the winners, and as ever, it was an honor being on the jury with such august individuals. Finally, for me, I have a bit of a soapbox moment, and Walker, if you'll permit me. I've been seeing some chatter online in a variety of sources for years, but recently there were a couple of instances that really got me angry, that were really associating facilitate games with certain intellectual predispositions and or intelligence. And I, I just have a couple of things to say about this. If you're good at board games, all that that means is that you're good at board games. That doesn't mean anything else at all. Similarly, if you're bad at board games, all that that means 
is that you're bad at board games and it doesn't mean anything else at all. I've met very, very, very smart people who are absolutely rubbish at either being competitive or at internalizing rules. And similarly, I've met many people who I wouldn't necessarily regard as particularly intellectually gifted, who are very competitive and or very good at internalizing rules. None of these things mean anything. And so I'm sick to death of people online, especially these people who self-identify as gamers gamers or heavy gamers or serious gamers or any other whatever nonsense self-congratulatory gatekeeping bits of garbage they want to put in front of their names talking about well i've got an engineering degree and i'm from a stem background so yeah of course of course i'm good at games or i'm predisposed to liking games shut up if you want to make a more inclusive hobby we need to start abandoning language like this i'm deadly serious because if you want to start associating being a good gamer whatever the hell that means with having a certain kind of background, especially a background that historically has underrepresented women and other minorities for generations and is still heavily lopsided and, of course, has a number of class issues as well, that's not going to grow the hobby. That's not very welcoming. That's not a good way to present things. I mean, I would even go even further than that and say that there isn't really a notion of being good at games generally. If you aren't good at the games you play, maybe you just haven't found the games you're good at, either, in, again, in terms of internalizing the rules or being competitive. I, so, please, let's just retire all these notions. If you play games, if you play a game, you're a gamer, and that's all there is to it. If you're not happy with how well you do, well then, you can have a discussion about how to perhaps improve your skills. But let's not assume that it has anything to do with a particular kind of educational, vocational, class, race, ethnic, or whatever background. And the more we talk about gaming being reserved to a certain group of people, that's the best way to ensure that our hobby is going to die. Anyway, I realize I'm probably overreacting. This is just a whole bunch of people who are being well-meaning in an attempt to identify various skill sets and or predispositions towards certain activities, but it can have extremely unfortunate side effects. So let's try to be a little bit more inclusive in our language wherever possible. It doesn't cost you anything. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Walker, what is our feature game? Our feature game this week is Imperium, the Contention. It's very contentious. Well, I mean, we have to put in the contention. Otherwise, we might confuse it with the many other games that have Imperium in the title. Only 700. A mere 700. Oh, and sorry, no. Since the beginning of my sentence, another one got released. So it's 701. Ah, oh, Jesus. Imperium the Contention was designed by Gary Dworetsky of, appropriately enough, Contention Games. And was published this year after a successful Kickstarter. It came in a couple of editions. The so-called Deluxe Edition and the Non-Deluxe Edition. Both of which were available at retail. There's still some copies kicking around. There is an excellent tabletop simulator mod. So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Imperium the contention. In Imperium Contention, you're under constant vigilance. You must know at all times what ships have ranged troops because <laughs> those ships break two fundamental core rules and you're going to be upset and angry if you don't remember. Uh. That is Imperium the Contention, Mark. Okay. I'm very contentious about it. Okay, okay. I'm not surprised. Walker, despite what elements of our personality are evident on the show, believe it or not, it is more frequently Walker, the one at the table, who gets salty when various things happen. But we'll get into that later. I have comments. I have views. <laughs> Imperium the Contention is another kind of pseudo-4X game with some of the elements of 4X games, but that doesn't isn't as big, cumbersome, or as lengthy as the so-called full-fledged 4X games. 4X games, again, being the typically sci-fi games where you explore, exploit, expand, and exterminate. 
other games in this vague wheelhouse I would identify, again, as being Quantum or Warpgate, games that have some of the elements but don't go the full distance of going to the level of an Eclipse or a Twilight Imperium. So what Walker is referring to, <laughs> and this is something that I want to emphasize right away, which is, to me is high praise, is that the cards that you're playing in Imperium the Contention, a lot of them are the kinds of cards that you'll go through and say, well, this seems broken. And that's one of the joys of the game. Because all this stuff comes out, all this wild and effective, all these wild and effective technologies and ships that don't seem even remotely balanced that you think are going to throw the game entirely off kilter, but yet the game survives. I would call this the cosmic encounter paradigm. There's enough broken stuff or broken looking stuff and enough wild effects that it comes out in the wash. You can't hard counter things, but that's because the general design philosophy that seems to be an Imperium of Contention is rather than giving someone an awesome tool that then can then be countered by someone else's card play, why not just give everyone fun tools to play with and let them do cool things? I would agree with you 100%. And all of these things that I whine about are easily remedied by just playing a few extra games and realizing that it is an issue that you must deal with. And like you said, it is a 4X game, but this game sets up so quickly. You just lay out your galaxy. There are like these multiple cards that you lay out in a grid. You grab your deck, shuffle it, and you're ready to start playing. And that's one of the great parts about this game. Quick, easy setup. You're playing within minutes. And the rules explanation is very, very simple as well. As ever, there will be questions about keywords. What does this keyword mean? What does that keyword mean? But there's an excellent glossary on the back of the rulebook if you remember that it's on the back of the rulebook, as once, hilariously, to my internal chagrin, I forgot. And you can play with pre-constructed decks. You can also play a deck construction version, whereby you can just build whatever kind of deck you want. Within restrictions, of course. But, uh, to be frank, uh, almost always, I've played with just the pre-made decks. I play. I played Imperium of Contention a, a number of times, and I've only ever really tweaked a deck once, and that was with another opponent who was inclined to do the same. And it was just a minor modification here and there. I just took out a couple of cards that weren't necessarily to my taste, and I subbed them with some other cards that were uh, that were more inclined to do. And nonetheless, even with the pre-constructed decks, you'd still get a very excellent flavor of six asymmetric different alien races and lots of neat different effects that let you feel like you're playing with cool toys. I also love the fact that they gave you blank cards as well, so you can create your own ships or your own cards. I thought that was a great touch. I was looking through all the, you know, uh, cards that you can add to your deck or sub out for your deck, because every deck has to be only 30 cards. And then I come across, you know, this whole, you know, grouping of just blank cards with pictures of different ships. So you can just, you know, sort of write in whatever you want and create, you know, scenarios or your own ships or whatever you want to do. I thought that was a great touch they did. I like how last time you played, you played a card that said Walker wins in crayon on it. I felt that that card was a little abusive. Uh, I paid the cost, Mark. I did the math, and I believe the one resource I paid to play it was more than enough. <laughs> so I, I want to address one way in which I really appreciate Imperium the Contention, above and beyond the fact that, quite frankly, it's a blast to play and cool stuff is always happening. And this is the Louie issue. I don't know how many Louis there are in the world. We love our Louis. We're very, very fond of them. But Louis is a particular gamer type that I've encountered a number of times. And this is a, a gamer who des desperately wants to play games with fighting in them. But sometimes, if given the option, will turtle. 
I trust that you will share my characterization of the Louis problem, Walker. 100%. So this is this is the kind of gamer that will turn down their noses at a game like El Grande, and in point of fact, one of the Louis of our acquaintance, after playing El Grande, said, eh, that was a nice game, shame there wasn't any player interaction, which I immediately regarded as laughable, but then I realized that what Louis means when Louis says player interaction is Louis means direct combat, and Louis only understands one kind of direct combat. And... Which makes it all the more unfortunate when you play a direct combat game with Louis and their first instincts are to turtle. Because Louis's a nice guy. Louis wants to be able to fight, but Louis's not going to punch you for no reason. And so it's really good to have games like Imperium the Contention around because, yes, it is almost exclusively ship combat and colony combat and blowing stuff up and throwing bombs at people. But you cannot turtle. It doesn't work. The game is structured in such a way that it's not just non-advantageous to turtle, but really the structure of the game and the basic thrust of the gameplay loop makes it painfully obvious, even to, to someone with Louis's predispositions, that they have to expand and they have to send out their fleets and start getting involved in dust-ups. Otherwise, they're just not going to get anywhere. And so I found the structure of Imperium the Contention for anyone who's inclined towards combat to be very, very robust. Yeah, and the, like you said, it goes very straightforward. Lots of things happen simultaneously. You're you're playing cards at the same time and flipping them up. You're quickly moving your ships around. Combat is dead simple. You know, each ship has to attack a certain ship. There's no, you know, unless there's, you know, keywords, of course, you know, throw a wrench in the system. But, sure. it's, you know, you can't spill your damage out. You know exactly how many ships you need to defend an area. It is a great little game, and like and then like you said, you have to colonize, and there's like this hammer action. It's very much like Sendles the of the multiverse, where you have this one action that you're allowed to do every turn, and then you're going to be playing these cards that give you you know different types of actions, and you just never know which one you want to do. This is the hammer action, and at the beginning of the game, it's almost always going to be settled because you need to expand out. One, to give yourself a buffer. Two, because that's your income. The more colonies you have out there, the more money you're going to get. And this does lead to you not being able to sort of come back once you're down. Because once you get pushed down, you're getting less income and you're going to sort of, you know, maybe peter out and you might be able to come back, but it makes it harder. But I think that's what's built into the game to make it not, you know, last, you know, three or four hours. It's (laughs) quick, deadly, fast, and then the game is over. And then you start again. I agree that there's a virtue in making sure that the game doesn't drag on too much. You know, you're not going to end up in a stalemate. But the economy of Imperium the Contention, I think, is its weakest element. Because we've talked a lot about multiplayer conflict games. And make no mistake, Imperium the Contention is great at two players. But it is also great at more players. But I don't like the way the economy works. Because as you say, when you start losing systems... Not only do you lose the systems involved, and that causes you to lose points and the other player to gain points, but it means you're going to be getting less income, which lets you play fewer cards and fewer ships, and you can end up in a death spiral. In a two-player game, that's fine. That brings the game to its natural conclusion. In a multiplayer game, eh, it can get a little awkward, because most of the time, the incentives are built into the game that you'll be picking on everyone equally, but sometimes it's going to be the case that one player is going to get the short end of the stick, and then they just get to do less fun things. Now, the points, on the other hand, I think are expertly crafted so as to avoid the multiplayer combat issue. If I take your colony, I gain more points than you lose, which means that the incentives are there, it's not in your interest to turtle, and the game is going to get to a natural end point, because one of the endgame conditions is to get end a turn with eight or more points. It's called influence. 
And that's a, that's, that is an instance of how to solve the multiplayer conflict problem. But I think the economy is one of the areas where it doesn't. Yeah. I thought that favorite thing was like, sort of, sort of like transactional. It's like, you yep. sort of have a deal with the other players. Like, okay, we're going to fight over this planet. We're going to, you know, take it back and forth from each other. And we're going to be gaining two every time and only losing one. And the two of us will move up while the other players are not. It's sort of, you know, you can sort of make these side deals and, I, th- I think it was great. But where you said that the economy is the weakest, I've written in here that I think the movement is the weakest because it's so turn-based <laughs> because you have to move all of your ships. If you are the first player and you're in a four-player game, you move all your ships, you try and defend your stuff, you have no idea where the other players are going to move, and then three other players are going to move all of their ships and and – it's just so much front-ended, you know, decision-making where you could just be destroyed and have no control over it whatsoever. I don't know, man. Okay, yes, the turn order is a massive issue. But again, this is one of those things that bedevils a lot of multiplayer conflict games. You'll remember, of course, that's one of the salient problems of Kemet. Kemet has been steadily trying to solve this issue through various iterations, through the so-called 1.6 update, through Blood and Sand. And I still don't think it's quite solved the turn order problem. I point to Kemet because it solved a lot of the other multiplayer conflict game problems. In Imperium the Contention, the turn order, I, I think, is actually half genius and half very, very silly. Walker's exactly right. When it's your turn, you move all your ships. So if you move last, you get to see where everyone else's ships are and just go to everyone's undefended colonies. There you go. Done deal. There's nothing they can do about it. Well, very little they can do about it. There's some things, some tactics they can then play later to move their ships ex post facto, but it's difficult. The thing is... I agree with you that that's blunt and stupid when you're the first player, but the turns are so quick that you know, you just know that sometimes it's your turn to get punched in the face, and sometimes it's your turn to punch someone else in the face. Granted, there are some weird turn order issues where, you know, you don't want to fight with the person to your left, you want to mostly fight to the player with your right, that's unfortunate. But the rest of the time, honestly, it's a bit like, as I said, the Cosmic Encounter Paradigm, it's crazy enough that it just kind of comes out in the wash. I just know that whenever I've got that first player marker in front of me, this is the time to be defensive. When the first player marker is to my left, this is the time for my offensives. I don't, and I honestly, at the end of it, even though I, I recognize that it's kind of wild, I don't mind. I love the variety in the decks. There's six that come in the box, and they all have a particular theme that they sort of like lean into. You know, you don't have to play it that way, but there's, the, you know, they have certain advantages if you do certain things. I like how there's tons of keywords that, that there's not only just you playing out ships, but there's agents and ambassadors and space stations and and uh, star bases. All these things, you know, you know, you're putting modifiers on planets. You're you're exploding ships into giant dreadnoughts. You're doing all sorts of things. I think they did a great job. I agree. You get to see fun things happen. You get to play with fun toys. There's not this endless laborious issue of, well, first I need to marshal my command tokens, and then I need to pick the right role to go and do the thing. No, 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 no. Everything is stripped down and hyper-focused on having fun space battles and having a variety of interesting toys to play with. And I really think that 
if you're going to do a simplified version of 4X the way this happens, this is the way you, you ought to do it. And the pre-constructed decks really play to their strengths and play to the strength of the design element. They want to keep things fast and moving and dynamic, which again, I think kind of plays into this notion of how the turn order works. You want to allow for lots of campaigns and you want to th- allow for things to work smoothly. Another way the game could have been designed is just saying that in turn order, everyone moves a single ship at a time. And that wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have been nearly as compelling because then you would have a game last probably twice as long and you would have had a lot more turtling because I would have moved a ship to attack. You would have then pulled back your ship to defend. Endless wash, rinse, repeat. Here, at least, you see turnover. You see, you get to be able to conquer stuff. And it tends to lead to an overall kind of arc. In the early game, everyone's spreading out. In the mid game, you start trading planets. And in the late game, you somebody makes a push for victory. And I really think that either by accident or by design, I, I personally think it's both because of being clever and of lucking into a number of solutions, you really end up with a fast-moving, compelling package. Yeah, it's not, any, it's not just your decks as well that are different. Even the galaxy you create, all the colony cards that you're going to flip up, even some of them, there's gates, and some of them have different abilities, and, and the deck is much bigger than what you need, so it's going to be a different game every time. And there's even a solo mode and a campaign mode, which I know you've played. What? How was it? I have given my reports on the podcast over the course of the weeks. Uh, some of the scenarios worked better for me than others. I'm not entirely sure whether that just happened to be the vicissitudes of the decks that I had. But it does give you, at times, a taste of the multiplayer experience in the sense that you still feel like you're trying to play your cards in the same way. Sometimes it seems a little bit more puzzly than I like, like a lot of solo modes have, where there's only one way to win, and it feels less like the actual game in that instance. But again, it depends on the scenario in my experience. The other difference that the deluxe version has, for what it's worth, is a small number of plastic ships that replace some of the tokens in the game. Whenever you play a card in the ship, that card itself is the ship. But there are some technologies or events or stations or what have you that spawn additional ships every round. And for that, instead of using little card tokens in the deluxe version, you can use plastic tokens if you want. Honestly, if you're not interested in the solo campaign, I would go for the base version. There's no reason to prefer it. The last thing I want to touch on is I've talked about the playing of the cards, the phase where everyone puts a card face down, and then you simultaneously flip it up, pay its cost, and you put it into play. But what we didn't talk about is that there's a bluff card. And so you can sort of, you know, as a turn, put your bluff cards just so you can see what other people are doing. You can sort of keep putting that out and waiting, you know, for your time to strike. But if everyone puts out the bluff card, then that ends the round. So there's this nice sort of sometimes, not every round, but sometimes it's nice press your luck. Not only that, they have the, the turn order summary is on that bluff card. So it makes it nice and easy to go through the game. I agree. It does have that little trade-off. I need to do this thing this turn, but I want it to happen as late as possible in the round. That tension is very nicely implemented by the bluff. So lastly, I'll play this anytime. It's nice and easy to pick up. It's one of these games where, like I said, the, the quick ref is right there in your deck. So you can start playing right away. There are a lot of keywords. So it's not, I'm not going to say it's one of these games where you can play without ever looking into the rules. But believe it or not, it's right on the back of the rule book. So it's nice <laughs> and easy to find if you know it's there. I'm sorry. I forgot that first time we played Walker. I'm so sorry. Maybe someday you'll forgive me. It's only funny because we had to <laughs> look them up online and then we turned over the book and there they were. Yeah, I know. It was too funny. It is funny because I'm stupid. I agree. I love the fact that it's so quick to play and so quick to explain and yet captures a lot of the lovely elements 
of big space shooty battles. And in terms of the sort of standard Magic the Gathering paradigm of, you know, I've got this 2-3 creature, and you've got this 4-3 creature, but I've got this instant effect that'll do extra damage, and where do I want to position it? On top of that element of choosing who to attack with what, which is an element that I've, I've appreciated. I've talked before about liking the epic card game, for example. But honestly, I think Imperium of Contention captures all of that, but layers on top of it an excellent element of this map of space where you have to worry about defending your colonies and of additional interesting effects. And so in many ways, it captures a lot of what I missed about Magic the Gathering without any of those broken bits. It replaces a lot of the joy that I had in Epic Epic the Card Game, for example, and at the same time giving me evocations of 4X. I highly recommend it if you're at all interested in a quick, in-your-face conflict game. Imperium of Contention, I think, has a lot going for it. And despite my misgivings about the economy, is something that I will go back for, especially for the Louis in your life. True. And lastly, lastly, for me, you were talking earlier about uh, Core Worlds, the art in Core Worlds. I think this is very similar in this game where it has this feeling where the, sh- you know, the ships look, look really amazing and have a lot of character and they're almost every card is different. There's agents and, and ambassadors. And the, I really th- thought they did a great job on the artwork. I would play it anytime. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker by his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. You can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon, Twitch, and SoWrongGames.com. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Thank you very much for joining us, listeners, from Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater. In honor of His Grace, Dr. Dr. Vincent, Duke of Diesel, OBE Esquire. This week we're going to be talking about Avatar The Last Airbender, Season 2. Walker, what do you have to say about Avatar Season 2? Season 2, we have the introduction of the Earthbender, and I thought they did a great job of, of you know, adding a diverse cast. We have someone that is blind, and I thought the antics were hilarious. Yeah, there's a fair amount of antics. Uh, I've, I've expressed my misgivings about antics. They, they really do bend over backwards in season two, especially to make sure that there are no adults that stay in the main cast, which again is a bit of my beef with some, some kids shows, but I will say this, and, and this is going to sound like I'm exaggerating for comic effect, but I mean this very, very sincerely. One of my favorite elements of conflict in fiction is the conflict of the hearth versus politics, the domestic versus the public, the sort of Hera versus Zeus conflict. And I really think that season two of The Last Airbender does it really, really, really well. The arc of Zuko, one of the main antagonists, and his uncle Iroh, who is the greatest character in the show bar none, is brilliant because Iroh's ambitions are more or less non-existent. And to a large extent, I can empathize with that. He used to be the famous general. He used to be the heir to the throne. He used to be lots of things. And now what he wants to do 
is serve tea. That's his highest aspiration in life. Seriously. That's what he wants to do now. His nephew, on the other hand, is consumed with political ambition and recognition. And this conflict between self-destruction so as to gain fame and accomplishment versus a humble life of anonymity drives almost all of Zuko's development in season two. And I was there for every second of it. What did you think about that part, Walker? I I agree 100%. And it sort of feeds in on itself. You can see the rage Billy and Zuko that, you know, because he wants sort of his uncle to sort of support him, Mm -hmm. but he's always off in his sort of his own world. And, And you can tell that he's doing it on purpose to try to show him humility and, and, and how to keep calm and how to analyze situations without, you know, using rage all the time. I, I And I would disagree. I agree with your characterization, but I would disagree with your specific wording. It's not that Iroh's in his own world. Iroh is trying to show Zuko a world he's never known. And that's, that's the key conflict. Can Zuko come to terms with anonymity and happiness? Those are hard things to come to terms with, right? Of giving up ambition, but in, but in exchange, gaining a degree of contentedness and peace. That he's it's like, seriously? No joke. This is the best I've seen it done since the last temptation of Christ. I realize that's a ridiculous comparison to make, right? But that is the last time I felt that this conflict between ambition and domesticity was so well rendered. I'm so happy that you're enjoying it. Uh, that and the, uh, the incredibly lavish animation doesn't hurt. <laughs> It's so true. But also, can, can we agree that, that, that Suki can do so much better? Suki, I think, might have some father issues. There must be something <laughs> going on there. So so when she was or, in the village in season one, maybe Sokka's the first boy she's ever met. Okay? Maybe, right? Maybe. But in season maybe. two, she's out in the world. She's seen other people who are not douchebags. Yeah, but they're not friends of the Avatar. I think she has maybe <laughs> celebrity syndrome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's friends with the Avatar. Wow. There, there's not. There's a term for people who want to hang out with celebrities or friends of celebrities. It is not a nice term, Walker, and it's not one that I can say on air. Thank you, friends and neighbors, for joining us for Spike Presents Masterpiece Theater. Join us next time, where we will presumably be talking about Avatar The Last Airbender, Season 3. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>